If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. For the decade between 1966 and 1976, Chairman Mao's cultural revolution wreaked immense devastation on China, with up to 2 million killed and another 36 million persecuted for perceived political or cultural sins. Tanya Brannigan is the author of Red Memory, which draws on personal testimonies to chart the story of this terrifying decade, and has been shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize, of which we are a media partner. Ellie Cawthorn spoke to Tanya to find out why the Cultural Revolution was such a significant moment in Chinese history, and how its impact can still be felt on the country's politics, culture and psyche today. Thank you so much for joining me today. Your book, Red Memory, grapples with many difficult questions surrounding China's cultural revolution and also how its devastating impact can be still felt very strongly in China today. Before we get into some of those difficult questions and and we perhaps touch on some of the people that you spoke to for the book, for those who aren't very familiar with this episode of Chinese history, how would you define or describe the Cultural Revolution? I think it is very hard for people to come to because it's so huge. It's universal. It goes right through Chinese society and it lasts for 10 years. So we're talking about a huge portion of time. It's an era of immense political violence and struggle, essentially, in which we see two million people die and tens of millions of more hounded, um, either for sort of thought crimes or really just because of their family background, perhaps having a parent who was a landlord, for example. And at its heart, it's really a power reassertion, a power move by Mao. So Mao at this time was still supreme, but he'd lost quite a lot of his political authority due to the disaster of the Great Leap Forward, which was this hubristic attempt to overhaul China's economy and agriculture, collectivising it, which led to about 40 million people dying in the Great Famine. And that was reined back by more pragmatic figures within the party. And so because of that, Mao decided he really had to reassert his authority he had this vision of this purity, this this idea that if only people believed more, essentially, were less pragmatic, more devoted to politics, that China could truly move forward into this communist era at the same time. And the way he did this, because, of course, he'd launched many political campaigns before, but in the past, he'd always gone through the party. This time, he had to go outside the party. And he turned to the masses, and in particular to young people, children in many cases. We're talking sometimes kids as young as 13 or 14 years old. They became the Red Guards, who were really his political shock troops, essentially. These vigilantes who went out. They were attacking, even murdering teachers, scholars, criticising him in in these brutal persecution sessions known as struggle sessions. They were also tearing down old-fashioned street names, old treasures and relics and great sort of cultural items like that. 
And there was this time of great sort of destruction and struggle in which we saw the whole of society consumed by it. So it went right from the top. Both of Mao's heirs, apparent, would die in this decade. But it went right through society, even to really poor farming families in very remote provinces. Nobody was safe. And in some ways, the most devastating thing about it was that it wasn't just about uh, your neighbour turning upon you, but it might be your close friend. It might even be a family member. We saw parents criticising their children, children turning upon their parents, spouses denouncing spouses. So a very brutal time. Yeah, I think that's a really great pricey of what we're going to be talking about today. When I was writing my questions, you'll notice that when I asked you to define or describe the Cultural Revolution, those were the terms I used. I initially had written down, can you explain the Cultural Revolution? And I decided that that was too thorny a question, too, too difficult a question to ask you to start with. You've written that the Cultural Revolution still puzzles historians today. And you've explained really well there, I think, Mao's motivation for triggering it. But how can we explain the willingness of the Chinese population to get on board with this? As you say, to turn on members of their own community, to turn on their own family members. Why do people take up Mao's directive to such a devastating extent? I think first and foremost, we had a society that had been absolutely devastated by a series of traumas being carved up by imperial powers, including, of course, the UK. There'd been the very brutal Japanese occupation. There'd been the Great Leap Forward, of course, in which 40 million had died. So this series of disasters, one after another, which had really left the population feeling pretty bruised and battered. And then we'd also seen the Communist Party come along and manage to unite this fractured country and to make changes in which workers, in many cases, were treated with more respect and were genuinely better off, in which literacy soared, in which women were feeling better. And so for all the terrible things that had already happened, such as the famine which followed the Great Leap Forward, there was a sense that the Communist Party, and particularly Mao, had genuinely brought a better China, in some sense. At the same time, they were also frustrated uh, by the very sort of tight controls in place in life. And they were revering Mao, really. There was a, already this personality cult that had developed, and particularly for young people. He was at once this godlike figure. He was treated almost like a deity. And at the same time, he was somebody who was very intimately present in your life. So there was a song from the time that children learned, Mother and Father are dear, but Chairman Mao is dearer. So there was this real sense that everything Mao said not only had to be obeyed, but was in some sense the ultimate truth that had to be followed. And then I think this mixture of frustrations, of a feeling that things clearly weren't going quite the way that the Communist Party had promised, this sense as well that the country was under threat, which of course it was in some ways. Chiang Kai-shek was still hoping to come back and reclaim the mainland from Taiwan and so forth. So there was this real sense that this promise of a better China was under threat. And I also think that once you combine that political zealotry and, and this idea of struggle that young people had been brought up with, because the communist revolution had been this extraordinary story of a tiny number of people fighting against the odds and somehow managing to take over and control the whole country... Once you combined all these things, that perhaps gave the initial 
fuel to the Cultural Revolution. But of course, once it began, it had a momentum of its own. And so other factors begin to creep in, personal grudges. People perhaps turn on a colleague or a boss because they want to get rid of them. Even ambition in some cases. People hope that if the officials above them have gone, perhaps they have a better chance of advancing. And defensiveness, people think that if they turn on somebody else, perhaps they or their families will be protected to some extent. So this whole world of other motives begins to come in as well. And it has this force and momentum of its own, which is very hard to stop. And then it's simply so unpredictable because Mao is so unpredictable. And so it goes through these waves of different phases. First of all, the young people rising up. Then Mao decides after a few years he's had enough. 17 million young people are sent down to the countryside thinking they're going to be there forever. And you see a much more orderly, but no less deadly, phase of political persecution begin. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something that I was kind of struggling to grasp when I was reading your book was what seemed like the kind of illogical spread of violence. The reasons that people were accused were often baffling. What could put you in the crosshairs for being persecuted? Absolutely anything, really. And so at the extremes, we saw people murdered for being members of a landlord family, and that extended even to infants, babies in arms. We saw entire families wiped out, because I think the feeling was that once you were killing the parents, you didn't want to leave anybody who might be there to seek revenge, perhaps, in future. So sometimes something as simple as family ties, perhaps having family abroad, perhaps being the child or grandchild of a landlord might be enough. In other times, it might be a political crime. And that was very, very broad. So it wasn't even something like denouncing Chairman Mao. It might be an unfortunate joke. It might be praising somebody who it turned out had themselves got into trouble. And then because it was such a turbulent time, even sycophancy itself was dangerous. So certainly in terms of people at the top of the party... The only thing you really had to do to protect yourself, let alone advance, was to lavish obsequious attention and praise upon Mao. But of course, at the same time, because Mao knew that that was the only instrument of advancement, he was also cynical and uh, very alert to anybody who was doing so. Lin Biao, who was one of the chief cheerleaders of the Cultural Revolution, but would die halfway through as as Mao's heir apparent, was a classic example of somebody who sort of rose by promoting Mao's cult constantly and yet fell very much for the same reasons. But even for people at less elevated levels, really, anything could be sort of potentially dangerous. So there's a wonderful book, Red Colour News Soldier, uh, by a remarkable man who was a state media photographer 
at the time, but also surreptitiously took lots of pictures of struggle sessions and so forth, which he secretly saved. And he talks in it uh, about his newspaper. And of course, this was always full of pictures of Mao and descriptions of all the marvellous things that Mao was doing. But on one occasion, somebody realised that when you held up a, a sheet of the newspaper to light, there was a picture of Mao and because there was a picture of a, a flag on the reverse side of the page, it looked as if there was a sort of spear going through Mao's head. And so, of course, this entirely innocent juxtaposition in a publication which was really all about promoting Mao uh, suddenly became the grounds for people to come under attack. Uh, so it was an extraordinary sort of broad range of things. And in fact, if you think about the moments, for example, when Red Guards were turning upon each other, which happened quite early on when there were sort of factions fighting against each other, when you talk to people who were involved about why they were trying to attack and even criticise and perhaps even kill people who'd been their comrades just a few months before, very often they can't really explain it. You know, they sort of say, well, there was this ideological struggle over a pamphlet or something. It's, it, it just seems so completely baffling to us. And it was a kind of madness at the time that got out of hand. Another example was this supposed conspiracy in which there had been a very, very small group of critical students, you know, perhaps a dozen, two dozen or so. This mushroomed into a hunt for this supposed conspiracy that saw well over 100,000 people persecuted and in some cases killed. And the official line at the time was that one of the reasons this conspiracy was so sinister was that even the people at the core of the conspiracy didn't know it existed. And I think that gives you some idea of the confusion and sheer insanity of the time, really. There's a lot to unpack here. And throughout the book, you speak to people that were involved in elements of the Cultural Revolution from all angles, really. One of the stories that you revisit that I think would be a good one to start off with to illustrate how dark things became is something that the people involved euphemistically called to you the 5th of August incident, in which a teacher was beaten to death. Can you tell us about that incident and where it kind of sits within the story of the Cultural Revolution? Bian Zhongyun was actually the first victim of the Cultural Revolution in Beijing, we believe. She was the vice principal of a very prestigious girls' school, attended by the daughters of several senior leaders and party figures, and she was beaten to death by her pupils. And that was really the start of what's since become known as Red August, which was this cataclysm, really, this wave of violence that spread first through Beijing and, and then across the country from August 1966. And as I said, I mean, she was beaten to death by teenage girls. She'd come under fire for being essentially bourgeois and revisionist. And the accusations made against her were things like being disloyal to Chairman Mao, essentially. Now, by this, she'd been asked whether if there was a disaster, a fire, for example, in the school, should people stop to take the picture of Chairman Mao to safety out of the building? And in fact, it says a lot about this time. She was wise enough, enough not to even answer that question directly, but just to say, well, obviously, it's important to leave quickly. But even that was one of the accusations thrown against her, that she obviously had insufficient reverence for Mao. And that really gives you a sense of the politics of the time. But nobody has ever been held responsible for her death. And that's very typical of most of the violence 
we saw. So even though after the Cultural Revolution, uh, she and many others were rehabilitated, it was made clear that they'd been innocent victims, nobody was ever charged or prosecuted, let alone taken to court or jailed for what happened. And so the failure to hold people responsible for the death of Bian Zhongyun and others is still immensely controversial to the, this day. In part, of course, we're talking in many cases about people who had good political connections. In many cases, some of the early Red Guards came from the families of top officials, the kind of people who were rehabilitated and back in charge after the Cultural Revolution. So there was clearly a sense it was sensitive and difficult and controversial in that regard. Also, I think there was simply a feeling that the party wanted to put the whole era behind them. It didn't want people to think about it too much. It just wanted to move on. And then, of course, they were children. And there is and was a real question about culpability there. No doubt that people did horrific things, but the question of how responsible people should be held as individuals for things that they may have done as 14, 15-year-olds under pressure perhaps, and in this time of immense political conditioning and indoctrination. I think that that is probably one of the elements that makes the incident you described and so many others in the book so shocking, the fact that the perpetrators were so young. You spoke to several people who were in the Red Guard when they were younger. How did they generally reflect on it? Why did they feel motivated to kind of take on this campaign? So yes, it was very striking that the people who first criticised Bian Zhongyun and therefore made her a, a victim of the political struggle, although they're not the ones who were directly involved in her death, they came forward to apologise in around 2012. And the feeling was, or the hope was, that it might lead to a kind of wider uh, reckoning. They said essentially that they had had to live with their guilt, that they wanted to take responsibility for what they had done, that they'd have to had to live with the immensity of the knowledge of what they'd done in beginning that process and perhaps in not doing more to stop the people who had beaten her that day. In fact, although the hope was that this might be the start of some kind of rehabilitation or almost a sort of peace process, it actually generated more anger, more controversy. Certainly, Bian Zhongyun's widower felt that he couldn't accept it, that he didn't accept the sincerity of that apology. And again, there was this real rancor and this debate about whether people were genuinely remorseful, whether they were really seeking to take ownership of what they had done and had fully acknowledged their responsibility, or whether they were simply trying to shift this burden of guilt that they'd been living with and trying to put it behind them and rescue their reputations and move on. And so what initially had been sort of conceived as this moment of reconciliation actually turned out to cause more anger and more controversy around it, I suppose. And that thread of reconciliation and rehabilitation, as you say, is a thread that runs throughout the book. How willing did you find that people were to talk to you, people who would fall probably into the category of perpetrators rather than victims? Well, this was what was so interesting about the wave of apologies and discussion around that time, which perhaps began around a decade ago. 
in fact, in the immediate aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, there had been this outburst of what was called scar literature, people talking about the horrors of the Cultural Revolution. But in general, it was more about what had been done to them than what they had done to others. And what was really different about what happened around sort of 2011, 2012, was that people began to come forward and talk about what they had done. That wasn't completely unknown before, but it had been much more sort of piecemeal, I suppose. And that really did feel like a turning point. As I said, there was a real question over how sincere people were. But of course, these are the people who chose to come forward when most people simply didn't want to acknowledge what happened at all or speak about it at all. And I think that what many other people felt was, well, at least these people are coming forward to talk about it. And even if their apologies are not as wholehearted, even if they're not as complete as we might have hoped, they are willing to come forward and say what they did. It's clear that so many people are carrying this immense burden of guilt. And I think for a lot of reasons, as they've got older, uh, it's become perhaps harder to live with. One is simply that we know as we get older, we tend to think more about what happened in our late adolescence, early 20s. It's a time in our lives when our memories sort of tend to be very strong. So it's quite natural for anybody to return to that time. And obviously for them, it's such a formative event. For people coming to the ends of their lives, perhaps thinking about what they've done in their lives, perhaps looking at themselves for the first time, realising that they're the same age as perhaps their victims were in many cases, perhaps thinking about their children and their grandchildren and the relationship they have with them and, and what to tell them about their lives. And then I think as these people began to speak, others were more willing to come forward. But it's it's very contested. And in many cases, it's the people who didn't do the worst things that are the ones who are willing to come forward and talk. Because, of course, if you had done the worst, you know, how do you live with the knowledge that you beat an innocent person to death? I mean, I... It's, it seems to me perhaps unsurprising that people would still be repressing those memories. But I think what was important to say as well is that it's a time that was simply very confusing for people as well. So alongside this immense guilt is this confusion. How could we do this? In the case of one of the people I first interviewed, what was really striking to me was that alongside her guilt was this real sense that she hadn't simply hadn't known what was right or wrong. So in her case, she actually shied away from violence and from beating people, although she did take part in sort of struggle sessions. But then she said to me, well, I felt it was wrong because that wasn't the way I'd been brought up. But then I also wondered if perhaps I wasn't pure enough, if my beliefs weren't strong enough. And so she recalls being immensely conflicted as well. And so I think what many people are looking for as they look back is not only trying to take responsibility for what they did, but it's simply trying to understand what happened, this confusing, inexplicable, incomprehensible series of events. And I guess if we're trying to understand the impact of this on the Chinese psyche today and that generation of Chinese people. I guess it's important, isn't it, to reiterate the scale of this. So if we have millions dead, I mean, how many perpetrators do we have? Surely a huge proportion of the population of a certain age would have been involved in some sense in the Cultural Revolution. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And many of them 
uh, perhaps against their wishes, or many of them simply from a sort of instinct for survival, that they thought if they didn't take part that they would be the next target. Uh, one of the people I talked to, uh, Wang Xilin, who's this uh, amazing composer who was almost killed in the Cultural Revolution, but just about survived, he said to me that he really thought the good people were just the ones that didn't participate in beating him and berating him at these struggle sessions because he said you know well nobody could try and stop it because obviously they couldn't in the, the mood of the time so for him even just sort of closing your eyes or turning away actually that struck him as being a good person in those circumstances it was just a time of such impossible moral choices and his story is particularly interesting isn't it because it shines a light on the impact of all of this not just on people's lives but also on culture and the arts i wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that Yes, the Chinese Communist Party had always seen culture as a weapon. They put it explicitly in these martial terms and had set out to use it to further the cause of revolution. And so Mao talks about this even before the party has taken power in his talks at what was then the communist base at Yan'an. He talks about needing art soldiers, how culture is this weapon that allows things to move forward. Uh, Wang Xilin was somebody who was very much passionate about, tied into that cause, um, but ultimately fell foul of it when it was decreed that he had sort of crossed the political lines, he'd got things wrong. And I think what his experience really speaks to is the way that culture is still shaped by these political imperatives. Some of them are things that are more obvious in that art is obviously not expected or not permitted to address controversial issues, uh, sensitive parts of Communist Party history and so forth. But also beyond that, things that we might consider quite sort of petty or quite trivial, there's this sense that art has to be uplifting, that it has to manifest what they call positive energy. Um, so if you think uh, about movies, for example, I mean, I spoke to a director who had made about 400 cuts to get his movie through the censors, and that wasn't because it was about the Communist Party directly, but they felt it was too sort of grim, too realist, and they essentially wanted there to be a happier ending. And so this is something that we've seen throughout communist history, but it really kind of reached its apogee, I guess, in the Cultural Revolution. And it still has this very powerful hold to this day. And of course, the other thing is that the Cultural Revolution was simply such a time of cultural destruction, both in terms of the country's traditional culture and religions and heritage, but also in terms of its exposure to the outside world, that foreign culture was simply cut off, it wasn't permitted. And that created an absence, I suppose, in people's knowledge. It also, rather counterproductively from Mao's point of view, meant that when the Cultural Revolution finally ended after his death, there was this extraordinary hunger for any kind of cultural influence, art from outside. People were just desperate to be able to listen to all this foreign culture that they'd missed out on. Mm. So you've mentioned how this stretched across a devastating decade, but how did it come to a conclusion and what happened afterwards? 
Well, it only ended after Mao's death, and then that was very swiftly followed by the fall of the Gang of Four who were ousted, the Gang of Four being his wife, Zhang Qing, and these other leftist intellectuals who'd been instrumental in pushing the Cultural Revolution forward and being its sort of figureheads, and and who would ultimately bear the brunt in the official verdict. It was blamed on them. They were sort of made to um, stand trial in these show trials and so forth. And that was the point at which it came to an end and China began to have this reckoning with the rehabilitation of victims gradually, with the, all the cadres who'd been ousted and purged, people like Deng Xiaoping, who had become the country's paramount leader. He'd been purged twice in the Cultural Revolution and he would come back within a few years uh, to be its top leader. And so what we saw then was the country being shaped by this aftermath, both in political terms that the leaders who survived really tried to collectivise and cage the power of the person at the top because they didn't want another strong man coming to power, ruling indefinitely, and being able to drag everybody else by the sheer force of will. And they included, for example, Xi Zhongshun, who is the father of the current leader of China, Xi Jinping. He was one of many people who thought, well, we really need to collectivise leadership. We need to put these norms in place around term limits and things like that. And of course, that's something that has gone by the wayside with his son. And then on the economic front, gradually, we saw this move towards the market away from sort of ultra-purist Maoism. And that was partly a response to the Cultural Revolution. It had stunted the economy. It meant that there was this huge number of young people suddenly coming back from the countryside without proper educations. They didn't have the jobs for them. We need They needed to do something with them. And this sense, just more generally, I think, that the party and the country really couldn't go on as it had. So in all sorts of ways, the Cultural Revolution actually oddly, ended up in not perpetuating Mao's ambitions, but actually destroying them in many regards. One of the striking things is that, although, as I said, the initial sort of wave of violence had been brought to an end by him within the first few years, actually, in his last few months, he said that the Cultural Revolution was sort of his mission that he hadn't finished and it would have to be completed, in his view. Something that's kind of bubbled under the surface of our whole conversation is the impact of all of this trauma on the Chinese psyche and the generation of people that you spoke to. How would you characterise that impact? I think the impact upon China has been so profound and so widespread, and yet it's very hard to see because it's a subject that's not completely taboo in the way that something like the 1989 crackdown on pro-democracy protests that started in Tiananmen Square has been, but it's been highly sensitive and highly policed. So on the surface, it seems as if the Cultural Revolution is not really there. And yet as soon as you start to talk to people, it's so evident how close it is It's something that's been silenced, not only, I have to say, by official repression, but also by personal trauma. So in many cases, people won't speak about it, even to family members. It's a very common thing that people will say to you, I know something terrible happened within my family, but nobody will tell me what it is. Nobody will talk about it. And I think that actually shows how deep that trauma 
runs, that even to speak about it is still seen as somehow being dangerous and threatening, as well as deeply upsetting. And one of the things that was really striking talking to psychotherapists is that they talk about the way this impact has been felt through the generations, even or perhaps especially when people don't talk about it within the family. You still see these patterns carried out, perhaps parents who are simply unable to trust the world in any sense. You know, your job as a parent is to try and prepare your child, send them out into the world, be prepared, learn what to trust and what not to trust. But if you've grown up in an era where you can't trust anything or anyone, of course, that's profoundly difficult to do. And so we see these psychological problems playing out over the generations. We've talked a bit about the culture. I mean, it was just so evident to me. The thing that really made me write this book, in a sense, was that I started to have this feeling that every conversation I had was taking me back to the Cultural Revolution. So if you spoke to a tycoon and you wanted to know how they'd become so rich, they would start to talk about all those years that they'd spent sort of toiling in grim rural poverty as one of these youths who was sent down from the city and how that had given them this drive to succeed. Or you'd talk to a film director and they'd talk about uh, the years they'd spent, this sort of hunger for any kind of outside culture and how this had kind of created this explosion of creativity that China then saw in the 80s. And of course, in politics, we see it play out. As I said, Xi Jinping, the country's leader, has obviously come to a very different conclusion from his father. But he seems like a figure, as, as we can see, who's deeply shaped by the Cultural Revolution. So he spent seven years working in the countryside as a rural labourer. Very grim. It's actually one of the few parts of the era that the party is willing to talk about and even celebrate, because rather than talking about why he was there, they just sort of say, look, he's a man of the people, he works really hard, he knows what it is to be tough, he's kind of made his way through this and sort of grown into this strong and mature figure. But at the same time, you do get this sense of somebody who feels that he has to be in control at all costs because it's very dangerous for anybody to have power over you. And so from all these different conversations that you have had for the book, are there any personal stories that perhaps we haven't touched on already that really stuck with you? I think there were so many. And what unites all these people in the book is that they were all people who chose to talk about the Cultural Revolution when almost everybody else wanted to forget it. And that's what makes them so remarkable. So I think certainly the awareness for me of how deeply scarred they were. One of my first interviewees, the, the Red Guard I talked about, who had this very ambivalent feeling at the time towards her refusal to take part in violence. But it was so obvious how traumatised she still was. When she talked about the things she'd seen at the time, it really was as if she was reliving them. She wasn't just remembering something, it was as if she was almost back there. Then again, talking to Zhang Hongbing, who was a 17-year-old who denounced his mother, who was executed a, a few weeks later. Again, the idea of living with that, of how you manage to carry that burden and go on and survive, I think that was extraordinarily powerful. And then finally, Wang Xilin, the composer who I mentioned, because he has this incredible passion for life, uh, just a, a hunger, I think, for experience, for all those things who were denied him, 
And it is remarkable to me that for all the trauma that people have endured and for all the pain that they have had to live with over these decades and for all that they're deeply scarred by it, people have still managed to go on and love, form relationships, be good parents and live good lives in some sense, despite this immense suffering. That was Tanya Brannigan. Tanya's book is Red Memory, Living, Remembering and Forgetting in China's Cultural Revolution. The book is shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize, of which we are a media partner. We'll be speaking to other shortlisted authors in the coming weeks, so look out for that. And you can find more interviews with shortlisted authors on our website at historyextra.com forward slash Kundal, or find out more about the prize at kundalprize.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.